This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We in media, and I speak as a journalist, we caused much of this. We polarized our nations. We had a business model built on clickbait, which led to cats and Kardashians and ultimately to Donald <laughs> Trump. Donald Trump is the ultimate clickbait. The heads of CBS and CNN News said that Donald Trump may be bad for the country, but good for business. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. There was a really bitter election in Turkey about a week ago. Recep Erdogan installed himself as a president with practically unlimited power with 53% of a vote. But make no mistake, this was no fair fight. Over the last years, Erdogan has imprisoned over 300 journalists, booted over 100,000 civil servants out of their jobs. In this election, protesters had often been beaten up. One opposition candidate was campaigning from prison and there was widespread reports of electoral irregularities. Now, I think there's a few interesting things that we can learn from what happened in Turkey. There's many differences between the United States and Turkey, between Italy and Turkey, but there's a few things that we should keep in mind. The first is that for a long time, elites both in Turkey and around the world dismissed the danger of Erdogan. They thought of him as a democratic reformer who would deepen democracy in the country. Go to the archives of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and see what people were writing about Erdogan two or three years after he took power, and they were mostly praising him. The second is that when a president like Erdogan tells lies consistently, claims that all of the opposition are traitors, that journalists are terrorists, over time, those ideas can take hold surprisingly effectively. And the third, as we see from the manufactured way in which Erdogan got just a tad over 50% of the vote is that you can actually entrench your power without being vastly popular across the whole population. It is enough to have a significant minority of people who are really committed to you to keep control of your base. The United States is not like Turkey, but I think that those three lessons are ones that we would do well to take to heart here as well. But now on a more optimistic note, there's been a lot of conversation about social media and the internet and the threat it poses to democracy. I'm quite concerned about some of the things it does myself. So I thought it would be actually interesting to bring a techno-optimist onto the show. So today we have Jeff Jarvis. He is a professor at the CUNY School of Journalism, the director of the Townite Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism there, and the author of many books that defend big parts of tech and show what kind of promise it might have, including Geeks Bearing Gifts, Imagine New Futures for News, and What Would Google Do? 
Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you so much. So, you know, one of the things that I find striking about how we think about the internet and social media is just the 180 degree turn we've done in the last few years, right? So four or five years ago, the standard mode, and this seems so long ago now, but four or five years ago, the standard mode was still sort of great optimism about how the internet and social media would connect people around the world, how it would actually empower democratic movements, how it might topple dictatorships. And now we're sort of in exactly the opposite land, right? It's it's obvious that the internet and social media is a huge danger to democracy, that it is mostly a tool for authoritarian powers like Russia and so on. So I think what I'd love to do with our conversation is to take us through the optimism, which you had four or five years ago, and then reflect together about how much of that still stands or doesn't. So if you sort of try to rewind your mind to five years ago, what, what would have been your case for why it is that the internet and social media can be positive forces? And I remain an optimist. As you said in, in your book, there's the techno-optimist period, and then there's the revenge of the techno-pessimist, and that's where we are now. And so I still try to remind people of the optimism. The internet is still filled with opportunity, with possibilities. We don't know what the fuck it is yet. We have no idea what the internet is yet. It is too soon. I constantly and obnoxiously take people to the timeline of Gutenberg, where movable type was invented in about 1450. And the first person didn't think to invent a newspaper until 1605. In that timeline, we're about the year 1474. Our Luther isn't born yet, right? Our Reformation has not begun. We don't know what the internet is yet. So it's too soon to define it and thus limit it and thus regulate it. So the problem is, in great measure, I think, Wait, wait, let me jump right into that last word. So I agree with you that we don't yet know what it is. We don't yet know how it's going to evolve. I mean, when you think about how different the internet was five years ago from what it is today, we tend to have an assumption that's all going to be Facebook and Twitter for the next 50 years, but that's unlikely, actually. Exactly. But it's not clear to me that the implication of that is that we shouldn't regulate it. I'll get back to your main question here of optimism, but let's stay on that for one second then. Let's look at the history of regulation we have so far and the track record in Europe, particularly. The Leistungsschutzrecht in Germany, the ancillary copyright, which became the link tax in Spain, which is becoming a new copyright law in the EU, is horribly dangerous, I think, to free speech. How so? Well, Google News pulled out of Spain as a result. Newspapers are hurt. I think that this is an effort by old threatened institutions to use their political capital to try to disadvantage the newcomers. But it's not really... So what know, do these laws actually do? And what, what is so the, 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 what, what, the, 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 the new copyright law will, in essence, require... I'm oversimplifying here, but in essence, has the potential to require those who link to and quote content to get permission for and pay for that. That privilege of sending people to you will also require you to check absolutely everything that somebody puts on your site to make sure it doesn't violate copyright or you're liable. What that means is a tamping down of conversation. So you have that. You have the right to be forgotten, which is a court decision. I would think Europe, of all places, would be very cautious about the idea of rewriting and erasing history, which is what's occurring there. You have the GDPR, the privacy regulations. Privacy is important. Privacy is necessary. But we've already seen that, Europe, that American publishers are cutting off Europe entirely because they're just simply not worth it. And Europe is balkanizing the web. You have upcoming e-privacy regulation. You have possible regulation in France against fake news, but who knows what fake news is? All of this is the hubris of government thinking that, on the one hand, it can solve every problem. But on the other hand, what the government is also saying is, this is your problem, Facebook. This is your problem, Google. You caused it. You fix it. Well, they didn't cause it. They didn't fix it. We in media, and I speak as a journalist, 
we caused much of this. We polarized our nations. We pitted red against blue and black against white, 99% against 1%. We had a business model built on clickbait, which led to Katz and Kardashians and ultimately to Donald <laughs> Trump. Donald Trump is the ultimate clickbait. The heads of CBS and CNN News said that Donald Trump may be bad for the country, but good for business. So that's the atmosphere we have now. So, so I want to get back to sort of a question of regulation later on, because I buy your case that a lot of the existing regulation is bad. I also buy the case that any set of regulations is going to have real downsides, but it's well, not at least unintended consequences and unintended consequences. But it's not clear to me that that means we shouldn't have any regulation at all. But I think that should be at the end of the conversation. So let's, let's go back, back to your case for optimism. Yes, it's, it's so hard. My, my podcast is not optimistic often enough, you right. see. So we and, need and, people like you to the problem is that readers up. Pessimism tends to be the gravity that drags us toward it. I'm an old media guy in all senses of the word old. And the internet caused me to have a second childhood and a second career and recognize new possibilities. I started blogging after 9-11 because I was there at the World Trade Center. And I just had a few recollections. I thought I'd do it for a few weeks, but it changed my entire view of media. Because I saw that people would link to me and say something about what I said, and I would link to them, and I realized a conversation was happening in different places in different times. And I realized finally that media properly conceived as a conversation. Yeah. Society and democracy are properly conceived as conversations. And, and just as a side note, I think it's striking. We are now so accustomed to that, that, you know, there's some piece that sparks controversy and people on Twitter respond to it. And then there's 17 op-ed writers who respond to it. That was not the case in quite the same way in the 80s and 90s. And even today, it's not the case in countries like Germany. Right. It's very rare there that you have an op-ed which explicitly responds to another op-ed. You sometimes get implicit conversations. If you know all of the people, you sort of recognize they're speaking to each other. But mostly it is just commentary on what has happened without being conversation with each other in that kind of way. Right. Now, I think we can actually wonder about whether that's good or bad. I think a lot of the least productive conversations we're having right now is people misrepresenting the argument of some well-known op-ed writer and then, you know, writing 10 op-eds about why that's wrong. There's 20 op-eds responding about why responses are wrong. And we sort of get distracted from the real issues. One example is the incident at the Red Hand restaurant where they refused to serve Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And then a bunch of articles about why that's breaking civility in an unacceptable way. And then a whole bunch of articles on why those worries are deeply problematic. And what's interesting about those last articles, in my mind, is that they say, look, how dare you talk about civility when there's really horrible things going on in the country? And I think that's a good point. But of course, in spending all of our attention on the articles that condemn Red Hen, those articles themselves are pulling our attention, pulling our focus great towards that incident yes. rather than talking about immigration itself. So this isn't necessarily anybody's fault, but that kind of media ecosystem does have disadvantages as well as advantages. It's a manipulation of the system. And that's what yeah. I think we've got to face. So I go back to my optimistic days and I believed strongly in openness. I believed in the power of openness. I was dogmatic about it, perhaps too much so. And I think I learned and the platforms have learned that pure openness inevitably breeds trolls and manipulation. And so the kind of manipulation we see now is economic fraud and spam, psychological trolls and incel and all that, and political. And now, of course, Russians and propaganda and such, and Trump and the ability to distract us all as if we're dogs with squirrels. Those are all forms of manipulation of a system. Did the platforms properly and sufficiently anticipate that manipulation? No. They did it in spam. They didn't see the sickos. They didn't see the, the Russians coming. And they're catching up now. Should they do more? Yes. 
I also think that the system now is designed around conversation, and that's a very shallow and temporal definition of community. I think it should be designed around community, around people gathering together to to share and to and to accomplish things and to do things. But I'll say again, these are early days. Facebook is a fairly simplistic tool that connects people originally to go on dates and look how it's been used. Twitter is an incredibly simplistic tool on purpose and look how it's been used. But I think that we can see new ways to engineer tools. And as Larry Lessig says, code is law. And so the coders are indeed making law. And this will get us back into regulation discussion in a few minutes. But they're learning from our own behavior how to design. And we're so used to a top-down world where we in the institutions determine how people should behave and we encourage that behavior Mm. and we set up systems for that behavior. This is the opposite. This is where human behavior occurs and then you try to reverse engineer systems to enable what you want to enable. And you're often going to be unsuccessful because people are people and they'll do what they want to do. I remain nonetheless very optimistic about the possibilities of the internet. Without social media, we would not have had Me Too, we would not have had Black Lives Matter, we would not have had the success of the Parkland students to date. And just look at the Parkland students themselves. All the arguments that the internet is ruining the next generation and turning them stupid and turning them illiterate, proven wrong by these amazing students and what they've been able to accomplish. That's the future. So let's see a lot of bad arguments against social media, right? I mean, I remember when people were saying that texting would destroy writing because people use these shorthands and so on. Well, first of all, shorthands can be a good form of colloquial English. And second of all, actually, it is making people write a lot more. In the age of a telephone conversation, you didn't write a lot. Now, because of Facebook and Twitter, as well as texting, young people write all of the time in a way they actually might not have done 20 or 25 years. And at the same time, Instagram and audio enable new forms of literacy around the world, which is also good. Sure. You know, and I agree with you on the fact that it enables a lot of new possibilities, I think is the phrase you use. Absolutely right. I mean, I was at a couple of conferences in the last few months with some of the Parkland students, and they are both admirable. And and the way in which they have been able to force themselves into the center of national conversation, essentially overnight, because of social media, is amazing. This would not have happened 20 or 25 years ago. There might have been a brief 30-second clip with them on some kind of news show, and that would have been it. Right, and now they really can drive a conversation forward, and that's that's clearly empowering. But I want to take your analogy with the invention of a printing press seriously. Uh, for a long time, I have to admit that I sort of dismissed that. Even five or six years ago, when people say, "Oh, it's like the invention of a book," I was like, uh, "You know, is this chronocentricity? Is this a way of thinking that you know our time is pivotal and we sort of exaggerate the importance of things?" But I've come around on just how revolutionary the invention of the internet of social media is as a communication technology. And one straightforward example of that is that, you know, 12 years, 10 years into the invention of the printing press, probably fewer than a thousand people had held a printed book in their hands and the technology hadn't left the city of Mainz. 10 years into the invention of Facebook, the platform had 2 billion monthly users around the world. And it would have basically spread to every country except for a couple of deeply authoritarian countries like North Korea that, that blocked it. And it's clear to me, as somebody who writes books, as somebody who reads books, that, you know, the world would be the poorer if we didn't know how to print a book. At the same time, it's quite clear that the invention of a printing press also created centuries of conflict, right? I mean, you mentioned Martin Luther. It led to centuries of conflict between Catholics and Protestants in, in Europe and so on. And so, you know, when I look back at that, That doesn't seem to me to be, you know, it's in some sense a story of optimism, which is to say that over the long run, new technologies certainly allow us to do amazing things and so on. 
But when I think about it in terms of my lifespan or even, you know, the lifespans of children or grandchildren I might one day have, it's not so obvious to me that I should be hardened. That's why we have to look in the very long term. I think we have to have enough faith in mankind and our fellow man and woman that we will figure this out. But that figuring it out will take a long time. If you really look at that, at that timeline, again, 1450, Elizabeth Eisenstein said it took 50 years for the book to take the form that we know now. It was still seen as automated writing. We're still in the point where we recognize all old media in this supposedly new medium. I don't think the internet's a medium, but that's another story. Luther born 1483, Luther's uh, theses 1517, Luther publishes in the 1520s. Wars occur aplenty. You get to the 1800s where the addition of steam leads to the, the invention of the mass media. You get to 1950 where television is the first major competitor to print. 1994, the introduction of the web. That's a very long timeline. There are two great academics at the University of Southern Denmark, Tom Pettit and Lars Ole Solberg, I hope I have his name right, who created the concept of what they call the Gutenberg parenthesis. Have you heard of this before? No, I haven't. So they argued that before Gutenberg, knowledge was passed around, mouth to mouth changed along the way. There was very little sense of ownership or authorship. The job of the scribes was to preserve ancient knowledge. Mm. Along comes Gutenberg. And now everything is in a container with an alpha and an omega, a beginning and an end. We see the world, and Marshall McLuhan would say that the line in this sentence is an example. We see the world serially. Mm. And there becomes a business model. The Statute of Anne, which again took 150 years after Gutenberg to invent copyright, to invent the business model of content. The idea that content is something that fills products, it fills these things with boundaries. We no longer so much honor the ancients as we honor current people like you, Herr Doctor, Professor, so and so, who has a book out, which is very good, which I've read, which you've just signed. I recommend it to all of your listeners if they haven't already gotten it. I, I um, only object to the use of Herr Professor Doctor, which is horribly <laughs> Germanic. This is why I left Germany. <laughs> but we honor institutions and titles and such, especially in Germany, but elsewhere, <laughs> elsewhere, right? So now they say, the Gutenberg parenthesis, we come to the other side of the parenthesis. And now, once again, knowledge is passed around click to click. It's changed or remixed along the way. There's less of a sense of ownership and authorship. Thus, we fight over the business model. We no longer so much honor the ancients or even the current experts and in institutions. David Weinberger says the smartest person in the room is the room itself, the network that enables us to share our knowledge. So I sat down with Tom Pettit and I said, wow, what a coincidence, Tom, that it looks a lot like the past. And he said, no, you idiot. Gutenberg's era was an exception. It was a parenthesis in history. And I think that what we're onto, that the, the change we're onto is not as simple as trying to adjust a few norms to having cameras on the street. The internet kills at one level the mass media business model with mass media. With it, I firmly believe the notion of the mass, which is a paternalistic invention of labeling people you don't know. I think that the nation is challenged. That's why we see the rise of nationalism. That's what you've written about. I think that if we don't know what the internet is yet, we certainly don't know what the impact is yet. Can we be optimistic? Yes, because I think we've figured out all these technologies in the past. A lot of travail and death and destruction did indeed occur. We can hope we've learned enough to avoid that. Maybe we won't. But that's the conflict I think we're seeing right now is over the fear of the future. And the fear right now is winning. And that's what bothers me terribly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
So I have to say that I sometimes traffic in straightforward pessimism. You know, here are the reasons why I'm very worried about the rise of populism around the world and so on. I have to say for that, that I stand to learn something from you and from a few other people I've heard recently, which is that actually the far more effective form of pessimism is to dress it up as optimism. I was at a panel yesterday on the fate of never-Trump Republicans, essentially, which led me to the fear that there may no longer be any never-Trump Republicans because a lot of never-Trump Republicans have essentially become anti-anti-Trumpers and the rest of them are slowly beating into becoming Democrats. But, you know, Ranesh Ponuro, who's a senior editor at National Review, said, well, no, I mean, I think the good news is that about 20% of Trump voters aren't really deeply ideologically committed to him. It's like, well, hang on a second, 20%? That's the good news? I feel a little similarly about what he said. If the good news is that after centuries of travails and possible wars, we're going to figure everything out, well, first of all, I don't want to live through centuries of wars. And you said earlier, you know, we have to think about the long run. But famously, as John Bonnet Cain says, in the long run, we're all dead. And secondly, that may be especially true, because if we had giant conflagrations like we did in the 16th century with modern technologies, analog technologies, I suppose, like nuclear bombs and so on, it's not clear to me that we would make it out on the other side. You are pessimistic. Uh... <laughs> There's Godwin's law for the, for the reference to Nazis. There, sh there should be your law for the reference to nuclear war now. <laughs> uh, yes, to all of that. But I think that here's the demographic question for us in America particularly, but also other nations that are going through this right now. I believe we're seeing the death of the notion of the mass. Now, you could come back to me and say, that's absurd, Jarvis. What we're seeing is the resurgence of the mass in the form of Trumpists and the IFD in Germany and on and on and on. Right, right. What if we're seeing their last gasp? What if we're seeing their last desperate cry to hold on to power? In America, that means white men. And white men are trying to hold on to power in this country, knowing that they're going to become a minority, knowing that there are challenges to them as a race, to them as, and their institutions, and they're afraid to death of it. And so they're going to every extreme they can. Lord knows they're about to. It could get worse, but it's pretty bad right now. Using children as hostages is pretty damn bad. On a moral scale of 1 to 10, it's pretty fine to sub-zero. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. There's worse. Lord knows there's worse. But this is bad. So is this the rise of the future or is this their last gasp? Well, that depends on the rest of us. And part of the problem right now in media is that media pays attention only to that minority. To quote, God help me, Spiro Agnew, we have a true silent majority out there today. The people who oppose Trump are a majority. But media pays zero attention to them. Media are paying attention only to the angry white man and woman who supported Trump. And so it's up to us, I think, in media and in education to try to bring perspective to this, to try to empower people and to force this to be their last gasp. I think that's possible. Is it certain? Absolutely not. That's why we have hard work to do. That's why pessimism is a necessary element in making us scared enough to be optimistic. So, you know, the argument you make is also made by some political scientists, right? And it's essentially to say that in order to understand the rise of populism, we have to see that a lot of the attitudes they trade on are actually declining. And so that somehow makes them both more motivated and more capable of uniting and acting as a unified bloc. And I take that argument seriously, but it's just, it strikes me as a little bit fishy, right? That we want to see the future being on our terms. And I think in terms of what we would like to see the future as, we probably have broadly similar views. And so, you know, when something happens, which shows that a whole ton of people don't want that future, 
or at least are so scared of what's going on right now that they're going to take political decisions which will lead us into a very, very different kind of future. We'll explain it by saying, well, it's the dying gasp. It seems a little bit too convenient to me. And it also doesn't quite accord with some of the evidence. So I agree that on a whole bunch of social attitudes, we're unlikely to turn the clock back. I don't think, I mean, one of the striking things about Donald Trump is that despite the ban on transgender soldiers, which in the end hasn't really gone into effect properly, and so on. You know, he's not actually relitigating the culture wars of 10 or 15 years ago. He's Though, not as we speak this morning, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld his Muslim ban and decreed that it was a violation of freedom of speech for California to require clinics to inform women of the opportunity for abortion and information. We could be returning to a bit of a demi-dark ages here, where education, openness, and diversity are not only not valued, but fought against. Oh, absolutely. But but I still think that it's interesting to to note what parts aren't being relitigated, right? And perhaps that'll come, perhaps that'll come in three or five years. That's certainly what we see in, in countries like Turkey, where at the beginning of retirement populists don't really roll back that many social norms, but then once they entrench the power, they really do. But so far, you know, the idea of gay marriage is not really being relitigated. Except in uh, bakeries. Trump is... Well, I, I think that's a slightly more complicated issue. Trump is appointing people like like Ambassador Grinnell to Germany, a deeply unpleasant man in all kinds of ways, but somebody who's openly gay. So, you know, 20 years ago, Republicans would not have done that, right? So, so I do think that there's certain things in which, at least in the short run, we're unlikely we can measure to measure progress. Back. Yes. But, and here it goes back to what you were saying, I think it's a category mistake to think that therefore the populists are a dying gas. Because in the end, I think populism is a political logic which can latch onto any set of distinctions between who the real people are and who the sort of dangerous outsiders are. And that can evolve over time. 15 years ago, gays would absolutely have counted as that. Yes. Now we don't quite in the same way, right? And so it's possible to look at all of the evidence that shows, oh, look, uh, people are getting more tolerant towards gay people. They're actually getting more racially tolerant in the United States, despite what we're saying in our politics. That's quite clear in surveys over time. And, you know, uh, there's more and more people who are not white in our country. And so, you know what, all of the things that Trump uses to mobilize people right now are just going to go away. And so this is the last dying gasp, as you put it, right? But you can look at places that don't have those kinds of tensions. I mean, in Canada, we just saw Doug Ford get elected Premier of Ontario without talking much about race and immigration in a state that is hugely diverse, more diverse than the United States as a whole at the moment. His brother was mayor of Toronto, which is even more diverse. But the basic populist playbook, and I think the kind of danger that this poses to democracy over time is the same or at least similar. And so that's why I'm a little skeptical that this is the dying gasp of people who are, you know, basically yesterday's news. I fear that through a series of economic frustrations, yes, some to a big extent because of the difficulty of people starting to accept an equal multi-ethnic society and where people have an interest in pushing against it, but also because of the rise of social media and the way it empowers outsiders, the way it favors simplistic argument, we have a moment of political instability that's going to stay. And that's going to stay even if the attitudes of Americans continues to become more friendly to people of different kinds of lifestyles, to people who don't have traditional family models, to people who aren't white, and all of those kinds of things. I still think that danger would persist. I didn't say it was their dying gasp. I said we have to try to work to make it their dying gasp. That We have work to do. And so what does that mean? 
I think that in all this talk about civility, I've got to find a new synonym and a new word here mm. for it. Because I've argued that in my worldview around journalism, if we move past the Gutenberg era knowledge of making a product called content, and we say, what is our real role in society? What does society really need? <clears throat> I redefine journalism because I have tenure and what the hell I can do that. You just redefine your job. That's, I, nice. I, that's fine. I can do that because I, I you know, the job stays. To argue that, that our... You haven't redefined it as radically, though, as the political scientist. I forget which university he was at who... Got tenure on publishing, you know, a series of very boring sort of stats-heavy articles and so on. And when the day he got tenure, announced that his real interest is in UFOs yeah. and the alien invasion yes, of the yes. Earth. And he was going to work on that forevermore. <laughs> <laughs> which might save us, indeed. So my new definition of journalism, which I have to edit again now because of the, the last two weeks, is that it is our job to convene communities into civil, informed, and productive conversation. That civility, and please, I'm going to have, I know the word has new weight now, so I have to change the word because the word's being used. But I know I'm interrupting you a lot today, but can I disagree with that? Because Which part? That civility has cooties now? That we, should that... Give, we should give up on the concept of civility. Good. And so let me address the red hen controversy. Look, I think there are certain norms and rules of liberal democracy, which I've talked about a lot in this podcast and my writing, which are very important to uphold over time. And that includes some amount of institutional forbearance. It includes some amount of minimum mutual respect. That doesn't mean, in my mind, that private citizens should be forbidden from lodging strong protests against members of the administration whom, open parentheses, in my mind, rightly close parentheses, they perceive as doing deeply immoral things. Yes. And I think it's a little bit of a strawman argument, but this is what everybody is saying. I have, an, I have seen very few people certainly from the political science literature or norms and institutions, make the argument that what happened to the Red Hand is a grand violation of those kinds of norms. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I haven't seen Steve Levitsky and Dan Ziblatt saying that. I haven't seen any really serious people saying that. Now, I think there's some question of strategy, just in lectural terms, how you express that righteous anger in a way that actually persuades some of our fellow citizens not to vote for Trump in 2020. This is a really important technical question. It's not obvious to me that as long as those protests are done actually in quite a civilized way as they were done at the Red Hen, that harms our electoral cause for 2020. But I think that's a question we should think about, not because we are morally obliged to, but because we want to win. So that's one more thing. But what's disturbed me a little bit in the counter-reaction to you know, some of the claims that Red Hen was a mistake, which were mostly claims about the strategy of it, is this idea of, no, 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 we live in these dangerous times and so on, so we have to get rid of all civility. And the very concept of civility is now a bad thing. Right. Civility continues to be important. Yes. And there are certain moments when you're justified in breaking it. Because well, you're it, making it, a very specific political point in a very specific situation. In the same way in which John Rawls distinguishes between how you should act in a legitimate political order that has many deeply unjust elements. He says, well, if a political order is completely unjust, like North Korea, you might be justified in basically breaking any kind of law. It's just a prudential question about whether or not you, you follow the law. Certain kinds of things may have more natural morality to it. You still don't want to go around killing your neighbor for no reason. But we don't really owe any allegiance to the laws. In a country like the United States, yes, you owe allegiance to the laws in general. It is in large part, a legitimate order, but it is absolutely appropriate to have forms of civil disobedience yes. in reaction to specific forms of injustice 
where you're trying to call your fellow citizens' attention to it. Right, I couldn't and agree more. that kind of framework, I think, is helpful for us to think at a lower level about civility. We should still strive to be civil in most ways. Uh, we should still have some kind of mutual tolerance. But when we perceive somebody like Sarah Sanders as not just justifying, but obfuscating the nature of a cruelty the administration perpetrates against immigrants and their children, it is absolutely fine to break with that form of civility as a targeted form of protest. I absolutely agree. And there's a proportionality here that the more uncivil the action that you're protesting, the more uncivil your protest is likely going to need to be. Uh, and I don't think Red Hand was uncivil. In fact, it was actually done quite civilly. Indeed. So this notion of civil, informed, or productive conversation, I think that, so, so I'll go with the word now. Success, civility, results. Civility, you taught me. Civility is a precondition to openness to people, openness to ideas, openness to facts. So that we in journalism and social media need to think about civility. Informed is my second word. We still need to inform people. But productive is also my third word. We have to get somewhere, which communities do. So let me tell you a quick story about a company called Spaceship Media. Two journalists, their first test was they got 25 women who voted for Trump in Alabama, 25 who voted for Clinton in San Francisco. Journalist interviews them all, gets to know them, establishes a relationship, throws them all into a private Facebook group. They start talking about their families at first. It's fine, but it doesn't take long at all before it descends into incivility and argument. But a few of the participants covered the journalists and say, can you help us out over here? Can you look up some stuff for us? Hmm. In my mind, the heavens opened up and the angels sang. <laughs> because at that moment, you had communities in conflict who desired an informed and civil conversation, who trusted and wanted facts, and who trusted the journalists to get it for them. Hallelujah. Right? But what made that happen? What made that possible was a different relationship among the communities and with the journalist. The journalist as an, as an external helpmate to this process. Mm. So this redefines journalism rather considerably. It also, I think, informs what the platform should do. Facebook has said recently, and full disclosure here is I got money from Facebook at my university to work on news integrity initiatives. I received no money personally from Facebook. I am independent of them. End of disclosure. But I think that Facebook, in the face of all that's occurred since the election, has said that they now want to favor meaningful interactions between people. And I argued in return that was a shallow definition of community. I fear we're going to move from clickbait to conversation bait. I can make you converse. Hmm. Uh, that's easy to do. That's not a community. I think it was Yogar's uh, book uh, about tribes that said communities are about people who give to each other, who are willing to give up something for someone else, hmm. who try to get somewhere, who have goals. Uh, I started a program at CUNY in social journalism, and I told the students to go out and find a community, a self-defined community, not bullshit like millennials, but a real community that defined itself that way. And I was wrong because they all came back, every single student, and reported about communities in plural, that it was at that point of friction between the communities where the journalism was needed. So what's our job in journalism? What's our job with Facebook? I think it is to, number one, make strangers less strange, which is your point about populism, mm. that, that if somehow, some way, through education and through media, we can take that mother in Guatemala and give you a true sense of what she's going through and perhaps, perhaps inspire some empathy in you that you no longer see her as the enemy. You understand why she walked 10,000 kilometers with her child through all this danger, that if we can get that kind of empathy there, if we can also build bridges, as Spaceship does, among communities in conflict, that's not as simple as saying, well, I'm going to shovel out the facts, and, and, and if you don't use them, that's your fault. That's media's viewpoint right now. To make the populist dying gasp truly a dying gasp is to presume that we can educate and bring empathy to some portion of them. And I, the optimist, 
think it's still possible. And that's the job we have to do. So I agree with you that one of the really valuable things that journalists can do is to connect people between the quite separate communities we now have and to try and make those communities mutually intelligible to each other. But I wonder whether that phenomenon itself is a creation of the internet and of social media. So what created community in 1970, in 1980? Well, it was national television and national newspapers and radio stations to a significant degree. Uh, no, that was a fake and, That was that notion of mass, that notion mm, we were all the same. Bull. Bull. So part of the problem I have when I say I want, I want to regain trust in media, people will remind me, well, if you were African-American in this country, you never trusted media because it never reflected your worldview. It never served you. If you were Latino-American, if you were gay-American. So and, and I think that was a, a, a mythical period where we believed that everybody trusted Uncle Walter. They didn't. That's right. I'm not saying that people completely trusted media and so on. And I make the very point you just made in the, in the book, which is to say that we used to have very powerful gatekeepers through national media. And in certain ways, that was good because it kept some really hateful voices out. It kept certain forms of fake news out. But in some ways, it was also really bad because it meant that people, certain marginalized people or people who advocated for politically marginal positions couldn't really get a hearing. And, you know, I often, when I give talks, make the point precisely in relation to the Parkland students. But it's also obviously true with relation to things like Me Too or just to, you know, minority communities being able to speak in their own voice and be heard in their own voice. All of that is right. So let me make my, my point a little more precise. Obviously, there's always different kinds of communities, geographic, ideological, social, ethnic. But what media did was that in the end, perhaps African Americans didn't trust the media very much, but if they wanted to know what happened that day, they would still watch CBS News at night. Very um, frustrated, I would argue. Very frustrated. But but what that does is to pull you, and perhaps that's a bad thing, but it pulls you towards some amount of common narrative and some amount of even common political values. You might not agree 100%, but it certainly pulls you in that direction rather than away from it. What you can do now on social media, and I can see your face is, is ready, screwing ready, up, yes. you're, you're going to show I am wrong, but, but let me finish the point, which is that now what you do in social media is that human beings have a natural instinct to conform. And that can be the local group, actually, right? So I'm just, you know, in my local town, and I might have a view that's more to the left, more to the right, but most of the people in the town are a little bit further away from me, so I'm pulled a little bit towards them, right? I watch national news. That represents a kind of some amount of national political consensus or something like that. It pulls me a little bit towards that. Now what you can do in social media is to just find people who have the exact views and concerns and so on that you do. And in so far as you come across from people with other political views, it is their least convincing tweets and posts presented in the most negative light. And what does that do? Well, that actually pulls my opinion even deeper towards the thing that I'm pre-inclined towards anyway. And so you get a fracturing into more and more communities but have less and less dialogue with others and that are more and more convinced of their rightness. And, and let me give you just one sort of example of that, that that I found quite striking recently, which is from vegan Twitter. I'm not a vegan. I, if I thought carefully enough about issues of the meat industry, I may well become a vegan, but I like my meat, so I try not to think about it. It's probably one of my bigger moral failings. But I came across this tweet. I, lo I love one of the great things I love about German media is there's an entire magazine devoted to men and meat. So it's, I need to look that up. Oh, that do, sounds, yes. yeah, I have never heard of this. So this woman who's prominent in the Twitter vegan community 
comes home and sees a bunch of kids uh, near an ice cream truck and one of them is crying because she doesn't have the money to buy an ice cream. And so she buys the little girl an ice cream and posts about it on Twitter and is eviscerated by her entire community of vegan activists for this act of conformity to the dairy industry. I cannot imagine a context in which that might have happened 20 or 40 years ago. That is, I think, a product of the way in which Twitter and Facebook, more Twitter than Facebook, but, but social media, pulls us in part into all of these separate political communities. And instead of her being pulled towards, well, I'm a vegan, but I, you know, most people around me are meat eaters, and so I actually slightly moderate my vegan views. What's happening here is that she's already somebody who's very committed to veganism and so on. And as a result of that tweet, she's probably going to be pulled back towards an even more pure view about never deviating from veganism in any kind of way. Now, that might be a good thing, right? I mean, perhaps this community is right about any kind of act of concession to the dairy industry being a moral crime. I, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but, but I do think it fundamentally transforms our political system and it does create these, a larger number of more sealed communities. So let me argue two things in response. Right. As you see people drawn more into separate communities where they can go to extremes and the internet does enable that, where they can feed each other, that's true. But at the same time, let's also remember there are all kinds of communities of people who never could have found each other before. I just came back from the VidCon YouTube fans conference in, in Anaheim, which I highly recommend. 30,000 YouTube fans, most of them young women, on the first floor, about 18,000. The second floor, about 6,000 creators. On the top floor, the industry floor, old white men like me who exploit everybody below. If you watch what happens at that session, you see an entirely different relationship of the creator and the community. There's a beautiful session there on mental health where people on stage, YouTubers on stage, have talked about their addiction and their depression and their eating disorders and their suicide attempts. They've already revealed this to the world. But in the room are 300 mainly young women who share that with them. An empathy that was never possible in big old mass media. A sense of knowing yourself and seeing yourself in media that you never could have had before because all you saw before was a monolithic view of the mass. The mass as insult. So let's, let's balance the bad that you quite pro properly and quite correctly litigate with the good that is now possible. My second argument- And the good for somebody who, for example, is gay or is a different kind of social minority in a small town where they used to be around- Precisely. People where nobody shared that, or at least they all hid it, and now they can connect to people, absolutely. Dana Boyd is eloquent about, about that and the opportunity that young people have to find themselves. So let me turn around to your second argument which is that I think you are idealizing a very brief period in history. If there's the Gutenberg parenthesis, there's the Cronkite parenthesis. There's a very brief time from the 50s until the 90s, a uh, very brief, when we had this myth of the shared national narrative. If you go back before that, cities had multiple papers. And we saw this, this change, especially in the United States, because we're so big, where you go from Cleveland, where you had a couple of papers, you have one now. In New York, you had 20 papers. And so you could find your own level. You could go to the Daily News, which was the part of the sexism, the working man's paper. You could go to the Herald Tribune. You could go to the New York Times. It still exists in national media across Europe. When I go to Germany, I can try to read Die Zeit and the Süddeutsche and the FAZ and see moderately different worldviews. Very, very, uh, very moderately different very moderately different, but not true here. Right? Until the 1970s here, we did not have national newspapers in the U.S. because we couldn't satellite transmit plates. That's what created USA Today, National Wall Street Journal, National New York Times. 
So before that, your one newspaper, your Chicago Tribune, your Cleveland Plain Dealer could go as far as the, as the train would travel, and it gave you one view of the world. But before that, you had a multiplicity of voices and media outlets. So I think you're trying to go back, to, you're trying to find a norm in the 50s and 60s and 70s that I think was an exception. So again, I, I agree with that. I agree that media was much more partisan, much more raucous, and often much more misleading, much more deeply unfair. In the 19th century United States, even in parts of the 20th century, we can argue exactly about when it starts to transform. But that also is a period in which both democracy in the United States in some ways is most stable, makes the biggest progress, and certainly in Western Europe, right? So to me, if you're saying, hey, you know, until 1950, that sort of media didn't exist, as a European, I say, yeah, things didn't look great before 1950. Yeah. So I agree that it's not as though sort of the world of 15 or 20 years ago is the world that had always existed and everything now is utterly new. But on the optimism-pessimism scale, where we keep coming back to in this conversation, I'm not sure how much that improves my mood. But I want to get back at the end of the conversation to regulation. Right? So what you're telling me the is European that... The European reflex. The European reflex. Well, if you, you know, I, I will... Uh, Count that as a microaggression against uh, <laughs> the U.S. citizen that I am as of a year ago. But a break of civility here. A break of civility on this podcast. This is a very civil podcast. I hope you don't blame me for that, dear listeners. Um, but when we get to regulation, I agree that the internet has tremendous potential benefit. I agree that a lot of the regulation that we have had so far is quite poor, in part because politicians don't understand much about technology. Uh, and frankly, I fear that a lot of regulation we might get in the future is going to be poor as well, because it's always difficult to avoid unforeseen consequences and so on. But how is the internet so special in that, right? I mean, we have regulation, which has lots of downside, which has lots of unintended consequences in our tax system and how we regulate power plants in every aspect of the economy. And yet we think that on balance, this is something that is good and that we need. And we always have to be careful about not having too much regulation and so on. But for something that has such a transformative impact on the world, that as the Gutenberg analogy indicates, might actually lead to a deep social conflict, certain forms of regulation are necessary. And the question shouldn't be, do we have regulation or not? The question should be, what does that look like? So I'm going to argue the opposite, that, that I'm not asking for the internet to be special. Quite the contrary, I'm asking for it to, to not be treated as special and to recognize that we already have laws in place and to create regulation to individual technologies is where the danger and the stupidity tends to enter. Example, the United States. Your first class letter is protected against government intervention except with a warrant and protections for your privacy. Your postcard, no, because it was presumed to be read by postal carriers. That was the law as it stood law that was written to a technology, the postal system. Along come email, DMs, and such, and they are not at all protected because the original law was written to a technology, the post office, right? And so what I'm arguing for is to say that we already have the laws. Uh, child pornography is already illegal. Fraud is already illegal. Threats and harassment should be more illegal, but that's true not just on, on the internet, it's true on telephones and, and otherwise. So I'm not asking for specialists. The problem comes when you have, for example, publishers in Germany like Springer and Burda, where I have friends, but who use their political capital to get laws passed that specifically try to disadvantage their new competitors and that try to engage in protectionism for themselves. You have well-intentioned efforts to the Netzde gay law in Germany to get rid of hate speech online. Well, the result is a couple things. One, Facebook is hiring 20,000 people to deal with nothing but getting rid of crap. 
this is an absolute apples to kumquats comparison, meaningless, but I'll use it anyway. To compare 20,000 people by, hired by Facebook to kill crap versus in the United States, we now have fewer than 30,000 journalists working for newspapers. Hmm. As a societal allocation of resources, what does that say about us? Because all of this heat and attention is on the dystopian, pessimistic, nasty view of social media. We have to do something about that and those people. We're not concentrating resources on the higher end. It also means that this may be another microaggression, that satire is all but dead in Germany. As if it was ever there, one could argue, but that if that, you that, are- That's a microaggression I approve of. Yes, but if you are that checker on Facebook and you are told to play safe and, and otherwise you could be fined huge amounts of money, and they are huge amounts of money, you're gonna kill anything that looks at all questionable. Well, where does dissent come from? Where does satire come from? Where does true discussion come from? From those kinds of disagreements. But the next day gay law, all but kills that. That's unintended. It was a well-intentioned law. Hate speech is a bad thing. But I tend to be a First Amendment absolutist. I tend to believe in openness. I tend to be optimistic. I tend to believe we as human beings will figure this out. So we already have the laws that we need. I don't think we need a raft of new laws. And I do think we need to protect the internet as a realm of innovation so that Good people with good intentions, with good resources, can try to find ways to help improve life. That's still okay. That's a great ending point, but I have one more very quick question, a series of questions. And by the way, I agree on having to defend freedom of speech. And I've written an article for the New Republic arguing that the Nets de Gay law is problematic precisely because it, it, it doesn't do that in the right way. So if five years ago we tended to be optimistic about tech, if now we tend to be very pessimistic, on a scale of one to 10, how optimistic do you think the social consensus is gonna be, say, 15 years from today? It depends on what we do. And so I do believe, I'm not saying that we just stand back and do nothing. I do believe that we in media and journalism have to recognize our culpability, our fault in polarizing this world, and that we're still doing it. When the, the narrative we put out is that the internet is bad for us and we're all a bunch of uncivil idiots, that's a very false narrative that leads eventually to a moral panic where media and government and eventually society try to blame all of their troubles, their troubles on one cause. And that cause right now is the internet or Facebook. That's clearly false. It's gonna lead to bad regulation, bad law, bad assumptions. So if we in media get our act together, if Facebook gets its act together, if educators get our act together, we can change this narrative. Nothing is set, we have to do a lot of work. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Design a fancy tote bag that we can sell at a modest price to our listeners. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.